Hello again, listeners. I'm Helena Cobbin, the president of Just World Educational, a non-profit organization that works to expand the discourse here in the United States and worldwide on vital issues of peace and justice, especially in the long-troubled Middle East. This episode of our podcast is the second in a special mini-series we're releasing as part of our Cast-Led Plus 10 project, which is running for 22 days starting December 27, 2018, to mark the anniversary of Israel's Operation Cast-Led assault against Gaza exactly 10 years ago. If you're on social media, we're using the hashtag hash Cast-Led Plus 10, with the 10 in numerals, to draw together the many activities we're running on our Twitter and Facebook accounts. Do follow us on both those platforms. We also have lots of campaign material on our website at www.justworldeducational.org, so do check back there for regular updates too. In this episode of our mini-series, you can hear the second half of the conversation I had about Cast-Led recently with the distinguished international jurist Richard Falk. In the previous episode, Professor Falk and I had discussed mainly what happened during the Cast-Led assault, ending with the ceasefire that Israel and Hamas reached on January 17, 2009. In this episode, Falk and I discussed the broader strategic impact and lasting legacy of Operation Cast-Led. I had started by asking him about the Goldstone Commission, the very controversial fact-finding mission headed by Judge Richard Goldstone that the UN set up soon after the ceasefire to investigate allegations of possible war crimes by both sides during the fighting. Here's how the conversation went from there. Did you originally have much hope in uh, Judge Goldstone and his colleagues on that? It was, what, a three- or a four-member commission? A four-member commission. Well, um, I didn't know. I thought it was was a mistake to select Goldstone because I knew knew him rather well and knew he was a a lifelong... uh, Zionist with family relations uh, in Israel and I also knew that he was I had worked with him uh, particularly in the Kosovo Commission of which he was the chair and I was a member and although I liked him personally and was quite friendly with him I felt he was a person of weak character and strong ambition and that's a very bad combination for a sensitive uh, undertaking of this sort. So I, from the beginning, I felt uncomfortable with his having that role. At the same time, I knew a couple of the other people on the commission who I had uh, a lot of confidence in, and I think they did the bulk of the intellectual work that produced the report particularly uh, Christine Chinkin, who's a professor of international law at the London School of Economics and one of the really leading people in in this field anywhere. And the other uh, two uh, members of the commission are very very respected, uh, conscientious, uh, uh, internationally known 
figures. So it was a very good commission, except for its chairman and its name. So they came out with their report. Um, it took them a bit of time. I think it was 2011 they came out with the report. No, I think it, the report came in, um, uh, the, uh, the Goldstone retraction came in 2011. The report okay. came toward the end of the, of 2009. And it was a long report because they put a lot of factual uh, material in and there were so many uh, separate under operations and uh, controversial uh, tactics and weapons and so on that it uh, it took a, I think the report is something like 570 pages it's a very uh, long long document though you get the gist of it from its executive summary and Goldstone in April of 2011 after having been put in under great uh, personal pressure the, his uh, synagogue back in South Africa had threatened to bar him from the uh, bar mitzvah of his grandchild his daughter who lived in Israel apparently refused to speak with him and he was attacked at the highest level uh, uh, by Israelis like Shimon Peres and others as having committed a blood libel against the Israeli people. And so his retraction, uh, of course he didn't acknowledge it in this way, seemed to me to be a, a consequence of that kind of pressure, particularly since it was uh, none of the other uh, members of the commission would join with him in questioning in any way uh, the uh, findings or the recommendations of the report. So it it uh, it was a um, peculiar undertaking, and it also the other important thing is that it illustrated what the UN can do and what it can't do. It can uh, investigate allegations of criminality of this sort, even when the target of that investigation is uh, protected geopolitically, as Israel has been by the U.S. and to some extent by the uh, Western European countries. But what it can't do is implement its uh, findings, no matter how compelling the evidence is in support of those findings. And so uh, it's it shifts the uh, burden and the opportunity to civil society to take seriously and do what it can to promote the recommendations that the UN itself is unable to carry out. And that's really what happened uh, with the Goldstone Report. It was very important, I think, in... Uh, legitimating nonviolent initiatives to exert pressure on Israel, uh, including the BDS campaign, it gave a, a much wider sense that uh, what Israel was doing to the Palestinian people was unreasonable and that 
the UN and uh, the governments of the world were not going to do anything to protect the Palestinian people and their rights. And so if there was to be protection, it had to come from society itself. Yes, that's an interesting point. Certainly, I think cast-led galvanized um, a lot of non-state individuals and, you know, non-governmental leaders um, and even some governments. I'm thinking particularly of the uh, the Turkish government. Was that when there was the incident at Davos when Erdogan uh, refused, walked out when he was supposed to be sitting with, uh, with Shimon Peres? Or maybe that was after the Mavi Marmara incident that he did that. No, no, you're right. It was uh, it was uh, in early uh, 2009. It was before the Mamre Mamre incident. It was 2010, and it was over Gaza and Kastled, and it was at the end of a panel in which the chair tried to cut him off, in uh, limiting him to one minute or something like, something of that sort, and he became very emotional and uh, was very upset by the Shimon Peres's defense of uh, Israel and cast lead and made a, a strong uh, pro-Palestinian statement. They were particularly upset. Turkey, Turkey was particularly upset because prior to cast lead, they had been trying to promote uh, peace peace negotiations between Syria and Israel over the Golan Heights, and they had um, uh, a series of secret meetings that were held in uh, Istanbul. And, and Israel never informed the Turkish government about their intentions to launch Kastled, uh, which both for Syria and for Turkey made the uh, this effort at diplomacy unacceptable. Yes, I suppose it must have looked like a sort of a cover for what the Israeli military was already planning. Yes, um, they were quite up at one point. They were very optimistic with these uh, Syrian negotiations and thought they would really achieve. Um, the Israeli withdrawal from the Golan Heights. But I'm suspicious that that ever was, I think you're closer to the truth, that this was a cover for something much more sinister. I mean, another part of the antecedent of um, Kastled was the fact that two years earlier, the Israeli military had received a very bloody nose in Lebanon. Yes. No, you're quite right to bring that up, and I think that was clearly one of the IDF uh, motivations and uh, sources of pressure that they exerted because they wanted to re restore their uh, reputation as a formidable military actor and gain not only... Uh, with respect to adversaries, but within Israeli society to uh, restore confidence in their uh, capabilities to defend Israeli security.
defend being being one one way of describing what they were doing. Yeah, well, of, of course, uh, I meant that what they were trying to communicate to the Israeli population was defend by imposing uh, overwhelming uh, losses on any adversary that would in any way uh, threaten or displease the Israeli leadership. I guess that's what they call restoring the credibility of the Israeli deterrent, which had, exactly. which had been badly damaged in 2006 in Lebanon. And, yes. Um, and, and so I guess then they used the overwhelming force against Gaza and also gave their ground forces a little bit of, you know, ground force um, exercise. Um, and and I don't think they wholly succeeded in restoring the, um, the deterrent that time. And then they had to try again in 2012 and again in 2014. But there is a kind of a standoff between Israel and Hamas that neither side seems capable of, of resolving. And you would think this would be a good, a good place for well-meaning international mediators to say, well, you know, let's try and do this in, in a way that doesn't involve force. Yes, I mean, uh, there's no question that, uh, that, that the inability of Israel to eliminate uh, Hamas as a political actor has caused big tensions on the Israeli domestic front on the uh, among right-wing uh, political uh, tendencies. And it, it, it is, uh, <clears throat> underlies the current uh, crisis, uh, political crisis in Israel, where Netanyahu was not willing to go as far as the extreme right wanted him to go in relation to the the border security uh, challenges that Israel has faced as a result of the great march of return in uh, in recent months. Uh, so there is that uh, issue. I don't fully agree that uh, Israel's uh, goals were to. Uh, restore deterrence. I think they were more a matter of trying to subjugate Gaza in ways that would uh, contribute to their broader political agenda, which seems to me to be to coerce a Palestinian surrender, a political surrender. And that's sort of the direction that the Trump diplomacy has been pushing in uh, since he was elected uh, two years ago. Well, that, that's right. I think when they talk about restoring the credibility of the deterrence, that's sort of mainly on the international, you know, security affairs conference circuit. That's the way they talk. But that's yes, it's it's a kind of acceptable language for doing unacceptable things. As opposed to saying, you know, well, we just really want to act like a colonial aggressive power and subjugate the natives. 
Which yeah, and we, we need to terrorize them to keep them from challenging our unlawful domination. Well, that's true. <laughs> so one of the other things that came out of, uh, out of cost led, um, was really this big civil society mobilization worldwide that you referred to, um, a little bit, but you know, we had not only the Mabi Mama and all that flotilla in 2010, but then repeated attempts at flotillas since then, none of which has, you know, made as much of a, of a mark as the Mabi Mama incident in which one actually Turkish-American citizen was killed by the Israelis. And nine Turks. And, and nine Turkish Turks. Um, yes, Turkish nationals, yes. So, and um, no, no, I think that uh, that is uh, quite correct. That the, and, and it, uh, as I tried to say earlier, uh, what uh, resulted from the rejection of the Goldstone recommendations was this understanding that you can't look to the international system to bring a just solution to the underlying problems uh, that the Palestinian people have been facing for decades. And that if there is to be uh, a meaningful uh, support for their struggle, it has to be based, it has to arise from uh, pressures by mobilized civil society, perhaps acting in conjunction with governments such as Turkey and South Africa that uh, are a very much seeking to find a way to protect Palestinian rights. So, the organized you... international system can't manage this kind of conflict when the geopolitical forces block its uh, efforts to do anything that would really exert pressure on Israel to live up to international law. So are you, in general, fairly hopeful that this might happen or that it is happening a little bit? Um, how do you read this kind of, it's an amorphous thing to look at, global civil society, but if we narrow it down, for example, to the situation here in the United States, do you see more mobilization for Palestinian rights as having grown up over the past 10 years? Yes, definitely. And there's a decline in um, uh, Zionist uh, enthusiasm and Jewish adherence to Zionism. Many, many fewer uh, younger generation Jews are attracted to the Zionist narrative and have been drawn to sympathize with the uh, Palestinian plight. At the same time, what that does is to make the uh, Israelis nervous about uh, this kind of development. So they've poured lots of money and effort into creating a uh, uh, kind of counter-movement uh, around 
accusations that this kind of activity is essentially anti-Semitic. It's what's called the new anti-Semitism. And uh, they've had some impact, of course, on the Trump presidency and on uh, some of the conservatives. And in, in some state houses in this country. Yes, so. I, I was just going to say that in, in some of the uh, conservative leaderships of several of the states. And in many cases, they've also attacked people's uh, academic freedom. There have been some high-profile cases, one just recently involving a African-American professor at Temple University who made a speech at the UN in November and was... uh, uh, dismissed. He had been a consultant to CNN, and they dismissed him summarily. Uh, and Temple University's president and chair of their board uh, denounced him in very uh, ugly language. And if you read the speech, it was a very humane uh, a- appeal to find a peaceful solution that would be beneficial to both peoples and produce a sustained peace. But it's part of this atmosphere of trying to destroy the messengers so you don't have to deal with the message. But we do have now also um, some younger members of Congress coming in who seem thus far to be sort of bright lights of um, people who are not cowed by the um, Zionist discourse suppression industry in this country, um, like the two new Muslim American women members of Congress, and then possibly some of the other incoming um, members, which um, makes me think about the the kind of the high hopes we all had for Obama ten years ago when he was just coming in. And, you know, seemed to be, well, he'd been a critic of the, of the invasion of Iraq, and he had earlier had, you know, a friendship with Rashid Khalidi that he had already disavowed when he was running for Senate. But, you know, there was, there was a sense of hope at that time of caste-led. And, and those hopes sadly came to nothing, because before we knew it, he had appointed Martin Indyk to be in charge of large portions of his uh, of his Middle East policy and um, in general just reverted to the kind of the pro-Zionist policies that people had seen from Clinton and George W. Bush. So do you think this time around we should be more hopeful that there can be change even if it's only in some small corners of Congress? Well, I've sort of learned over the years to be neither optimistic nor pessimistic about because uh, there are too many uncertainties in the uh, regional context, in the American setting, and in the way in which uh, Israel and Palestine interact. So I think that because of that uncertainty, uh, one needs to strive Uh, to strengthen what elements there are that are seeking a just outcome. And these new 
Congress people are flickers of hope, but I think they know more than that. And I don't have much. I, I wouldn't place uh, much uh, hope on the official institutions of the U.S. government uh, unless there was a powerful uh, social movement, which I don't see happening without other things happening first. Uh, so I think the best hope is that this accelerated uh, global solidarity movement, which, as you suggested, has the support of uh, increasing number of governments as well, uh, will lead uh, Israeli elites to do what happened in South Africa, namely to recalculate their own interests in ways that uh, lead to a more peaceful path to the future. Uh, I, I have that as my sense of how change could come uh, that doesn't look likely or even possible at the moment. Right. I mean, uh, we could spend a long time looking for the Israeli de Klerk, who would be that kind of a transformational figure from the existing elite. But I guess yes, but you know, if you had been, I was in South Africa not long before the release of Mandela from prison, and no one there anticipated that the clerk would be the clerk. It was a, came as a complete surprise to a host. I was the an observer at a political trial, and uh, the whole spectrum of South African opinion even at the anti, most ardent anti-apartheid uh, uh, people that were still at large, as well as the pro-apartheid people, none of them anticipated any future other than one that was going to descend into an armed struggle at some point. So um, if we just end up by coming back to Gaza, what should we in the West, in particular here in the United States, citizens of a country that is the greatest supporter of everything that Israel has done for the past 50 years, what, what should we be doing here in the United States to try to ensure that the rights, not just of Palestinians in Gaza, but um, Palestinians everywhere to ensure that those rights do get respected? Well, I think the uh, tactic that I feel from a, a civilian uh, perspective is has been uh, the most effective recently is to uh, portray uh, Israel as an apartheid state that is relying on these kinds of structures to victimize the Palestinian people as a whole and most uh, vividly those who are in uh, Gaza. And the two million or so people in Gaza are very uh, related to this Israeli push to have a one-state solution uh, whereby they would like to not have to deal with the two million people in Gaza and would 
have been pressing to um, persuade either Jordan or Egypt or some combination uh, to take responsibility for the administration of so they wouldn't have the problem of being a Jewish state uh, with a majority non-Jew Jewish population. They also have themselves sort of given credibility to this uh, apartheid assessment by the recent law of the uh, the basic law of the Jewish people, which uh, denies Arabic as an official language and makes it clear that uh, Jews have a superior status within uh, Palestine to that enjoyed uh, by non-Jews. And they just rejected the Knesset, as you probably know, uh, recently uh, rejected a law that said all peoples living within Israel are entitled to equal treatment. So the right. apartheid argument has almost, except for the word, has been really endorsed uh, by Israel, uh, formal institutions of Israel itself. And of course, from an international law point of view, apartheid is an international crime. The apartheid convention makes that clear. And it is listed among the crimes against humanity in the statute of the International Criminal Court. And it's also made clear that apartheid is a form of discriminatory uh, victimization of a people in order to maintain a certain kind of uh, political structure in a state. And it doesn't have to re resemble in any way what the South Africans did. So do you see that, that calling out Israeli practices as being practices of apartheid, that that is an argument that is, is gaining strength here in the United States? Oh, yes. I think it's gaining uh, strength around the world, and uh, it's become almost uh, uh, mainstream uh, critical discourse at this point. And as I say, the Israelis have themselves lent a measure of credibility to it that is very hard for uh, even Zionists to ignore. So it's, it seems as if the, the sort of the ideological struggle um, between those of us who want to call out Israeli uh, crimes against humanity and, and their inhumanity the ideological struggle between our side and between the, the kind of the ultra-Zionist side, the, the kind of people and organizations that you referred to earlier that are, have been working to criminalize um, boycotting and to um, suppress discourse, that sort of ideological struggle seems to be, I mean, we've kind of, we've joined it now, and there's no longer really the kind of, wishy-washy, whitewashing, Zionist sort of, the left Zionist narrative seems to have, have kind of disappeared almost. Uh, not, not yes, so. except that I think among uh, liberal Zionists uh, who uh, are um, very strongly represented in Jewish middle class uh, context, 
they still hold the illusion that the problem is Netanyahu and that if he passes from the scene, they can still envision some kind of solution. It's a what I call a zombie uh, geopolitics because it, uh, the two-state solution has long been superseded by the settlement dynamic and the annexation of Jerusalem and so on. So that, um, it, but it, but liberal Zionists continue to hold that uh, kind of fig leaf. Even, even though, even though there are no, I, I agree with you that there are many liberal Zionists in this country that kind of cling to the old verities that they they have clung to for a long time. But right now, there's no, there's no liberal Zionism in Israel itself. I mean, there's... No, I mean, this whole thing is because of the inability to really accept the truth about what Israel has become and is. They're prepared. They accept rationalization that shifts the uh, uh, focus of criticism to the present Israeli leadership and have this sense that the two-state solution is still the only solution and that a post-Netanyahu leader can uh, bring that back into the political arena. I think that's completely uh, false and uh, highly misleading, but sincerely held by a lot of people still. Interesting. Well, listen, I think we've probably covered just about everything we can cover for now. Um, Good. Cast-led and its effects on world politics 10 years later. So thank you very much for giving me the time and um, hope to... No, I'm glad we did. Hey there. I want to remind you that on January 3rd, we'll be releasing the next episode in this mini-series, a conversation I had recently with the veteran social justice activist Joe Catron, who recently joined Just World Educational as our Director of Outreach. In it, Joe talks about how cast-led was a big factor that galvanized his interest in Palestine, and also about the three-plus years he spent in Gaza from 2011 through fall 2014, a time when he directly witnessed two further Israeli assaults on Gaza. Those assaults, by the way, would almost certainly have been prevented if Israel had been held accountable for the crimes it committed in the 2008-2009 assault. This mini-series on Just World Podcast is part of our broader Cast Lead Plus 10 campaign. You can find more information about the campaign on our website at www.justworldeducational.org. If you click on the Donate tab on the website, you can learn about how you can help support our Cast-Led Plus 10 campaign and all the rest of our community education programs. We really appreciate any financial or volunteering help you can give us. Thanks, and stay well.